Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 17 and verse 20 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 876 if you are using a church Bible, page 876. Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Maui. Uh, Like Ben prayed earlier, our heart is with them. Lord, would you please um, have mercy upon Maui and Lahaina and preserve life and and grant life eternal. Uh, I know that their services there uh, for your church uh, feel a lot different than today, and so I pray that you would use um, your people and your pulpits uh, to proclaim a Jesus that's, that's far greater than anything, and that people would cling to you, and they would come to know you, and that they would uh, be found in the rock ages. We pray the same things for ourselves here as we turn to your word, that you would make Jesus Christ glorious to us more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, within the history of religion, people who have seemed to have understood everything have often uh, gotten everything wrong. Even the Christian church has within its own biography over the last uh, 2,000 years veered here and there in a variety of ways, and embarrassingly so sometimes, until finally when a period of time has passed and with a 2020 glance in hindsight, so many of those who represent Christ often really didn't even understand the clear teachings of Christ. And that's not to say that Christianity is therefore false. Of course, there are many who do understand and continue on faithfully. Jesus has promised to build his church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The sinfulness and imperfections of humanity can't halt it. But it is to say that sometimes even the most religious people can tend to go their own way rather than Jesus's and reason within their own minds rather than his and judge by appearance more than they judge things by the word of God. And we come to a text where we find that it can be that the most religious people of the day are doing just that, that their own presuppositions, their own bias, their own expectations are blinding them to what is obviously right in front of them. I mean, we just left a passage where nine out of 10 lepers, uh, where 10 lepers are miraculously healed, their lives transformed, and only one of them returns to worship. Uh, Only one of them really gets it. And that one is a Samaritan who most religious people would classify as being the furthest from God, that that one is actually the closest to him. And so the ones who should get it don't, and the ones who shouldn't do. Because people, again, can often judge Jesus by their own prejudices of what they think the Messiah should be like, and then they can't see him for who he really is. In the passage before us, Jesus is teaching us about the nature of his kingdom. This, this text is all about the kingdom of God. And he's clarifying what it is and what it isn't. And he's destroying, in doing so, preconceived notions about that kingdom. Jesus teaches about its coming, who will be within it, the way of the world regarding it. Uh, This passage is all about the kingdom of God. And it may perhaps clash with some of our own perceptions of it. Please look with me in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. 
nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is not initially like the kingdoms that we see in this world at all. The kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is entirely unlike what many would expect a kingdom to be like. You know, when we think of kingdom, we can often think of huge palaces and royal families and explicit and obvious symbols of power, uh, armies, luxuries, etc., etc. And then we can think of the king as one with this massive throne and this ostentatious crown, the bigger the better. Uh, a scepter, the longer, the more powerful. And that royalty is married to outward signs of it to prove its validity. There's, there's going to be signs that a kingdom has come. And so when the Pharisees are asking, when is the kingdom of God going to come? They believe in the kingdom of God, and they're looking for these kinds of signs of it. I mean, there are Israelites who are currently occupied by Rome, conquered in the first century. Jerusalem, pagan occupied. Soldiers everywhere. Their governance is authoritative. We aren't even free. We're not even a sovereign state. And so when they are asking about the kingdom, their perception of the Messiah, their bias of the anointed one, the king, is going to be this ruling military figure who's going to overthrow the Romans and reinstitute the Davidic throne and who would rule and reign from Jerusalem in a greater way than Israel had ever experienced. Their perception of the kingdom was very ethnocentric and really very short-sighted. I mean, who talks about Rome today? Nobody. But the signs of the kingdom, therefore, are going to be an accumulated army, a unifying leadership, a brave heart kind of motivator and political upheaval. And that's not to say that Jesus is not going to rule and reign with obvious power or to negate that he is currently seated upon the throne at the right hand of the Father, which is an expression of that power. But that is not the kingdom of God in its current state. Nor should we judge the success of Jesus' rule and reign by how we would gauge the strength and success of the other earthly kingdoms. The kingdom of God in its current state is not something that you say, look, here it is, or there it is. Jesus is clarifying, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does that mean? I think it means that the king is right in front of your face. And the kingdom initially is made up of those who recognize that fact, even without the pomp, splendor, crown, and scepter that they recognize this king. And throughout Luke, we've seen this uh, subtle, almost indistinguishable nature of the kingdom. I mean, the king himself is born in a manger. Jesus lives as a carpenter out in Podunk, Galilee. Isaiah 53, 2 tells us he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's Jesus's childhood. And his band of followers is made up of fishermen, a zealot, an ex-tax collector, and a handful of others who no one would choose to make up their dream team of the future movers and shakers of the world. If you want to start something powerful, you want the cream of the crop, you want a more royal court, not these guys. And yet it is, we have the blind now seen, the lame now walking, the Deaf now hearing, the poor having the good news preached to them, the hungry now fed, the sick made well, storms stopped within a single sentence. We witness the demonic overthrown because something, someone is stronger than they are. 
We witnessed lepers feeling human embrace for the first time in a very long time. Tax collectors, the worst of the worst kind of sellout, they are leaving their lucrative trade to decide to become poor so that they might praise instead. We see prostitutes changing their ways and spending their money on worship. Samaritans, leprous ones at that. They are understanding that the kingdom of God is about the worship and the recognition of the king. These tell us quite a bit about the nature of the kingdom of God in its present state. Every miracle, a parable, a testament to the power of Jesus Christ within the lives of those broken down and sinful and not right to renew and redeem and even overthrow the most dark and evil of forces. The kingdom has really been like this mustard seed growing and growing into this mighty tree without almost anyone noticing it at all. All of these things are happening, but those who refuse to see it are not going to see it. And those who don't allow their perceptions, their expectations, their presuppositions of his rule and reign to be altered, Instead, to what is true, they're never going to embrace this kind of kingdom. The Pharisees, the most religious people of the day, have the promised king right in front of their faces. They're witnessing people's lives being changed all around them, and they're asking about the kingdom of God without seeing it and without seeing him and recognizing Jesus for who he is because they have it all wrong. They have a notion of what their king should be like look like, and act like, and Jesus doesn't fit it. And they can't see him for who he really is, nor understand the kingdom for what it currently is. The kingdom of God is, is initially not accompanied by ostentatious and external showings of political or military power or palaces and thrones or financial juice or feats that people take pictures of and document. The kingdom of God has been growing without pomp, without noise, and often without much fanfare because thousands upon thousands of people have seen Jesus as king and have bowed their knee in worship of that king. And it's the same today. Do you know that even in closed countries, quote-unquote closed, like China, they are actually experiencing the greatest increase in conversions in terms of sheer raw numbers that's in the face of massive opposition and the persecution of it. A kingdom of God right here at Oma changes the hearts of people. It has power over the lives uh, in what we decide to live for. It can impact our minds, our consciences, and what we love, who we love, and how, where we serve, and why. It changes what actually gives to us joy where we begin to more and more desire to live for the glory of God more than any other thing, where Jesus is actually king and especially over our own little glories and our own little kingdoms and our own self-centered ideas of what Jesus should be like, which unfortunately is not the kind of kingdom these religious Pharisees are looking for. And so unlike the kingdoms we see in the world where we can measure its legitimacy in materialistic ways, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is primarily now found amongst those who recognize the king and worship him for who he truly is. And the ones who are looking for more ostentatious and obvious signs of it, more fireworks, so to speak, uh, may be the ones who actually miss it entirely because they're looking for the wrong thing. But it is this, this quiet nature of the kingdom that's going to bring difficulty for those who do follow this king. And, and Jesus next, he turns his focus to his disciples now and away from the Pharisees. 
and he wants to instruct his followers about this kingdom. Look with me in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The second coming of Jesus is going to be unmistakable. But the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming is going to be very difficult. There will be no doubt about Jesus' return when he does return. But there is going to be doubt prior to it. As much as the disciples are different than the Pharisees and have left all to follow uh, the Galilean carpenter who they know more and more is actually the Son of God, is God himself, that this is the Messiah, the promised one. As much as they are convinced of Jesus, that is not to say that they are prepared for what is to come. And so Jesus turns his attention away from the Pharisees who reject him and on to these disciples who do acknowledge him. That while the kingdom of God and its initial arrival has been subtle and without fireworks, it will not always be that way. The second coming of Jesus is going to be utterly unlike the first. It will be sudden, undeniable. It's going to be a cosmic event where no one is left guessing if Jesus has returned for his people or if Jesus is the real deal. The second coming of Jesus is not going to be in a manger in Bethlehem with no place to lay his head. The second coming of Jesus will be ostentatious, if you will, obvious, like lightning is not a subtle thing, but undeniable, so the return of the king will not be subtle, but undeniable. But that idea is just one sentence in this passage, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. The focus more so here is in the in-between period, and it's not going to be all that comfortable all the time. Jesus is telling his followers the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. That means it's going to be hard, and certain days are going to be more difficult. You're going to long for me, and whether that's looking backward for these disciples and remember the days when we had Jesus physically with us, I wish I could have one of those days, or whether they're looking forward that these disciples and all of us with them, the church who love Jesus, we long for his return and want to see him more than we want to see anything else. The principle is similar, that we are going to be feeling it, and we're going to be feeling that absence. You know, brothers and sisters, if we're real and honest with ourselves, there are going to be those days where we may sit and wonder if Jesus' kingdom is in all of his fullness is ever going to come. If we live through this world of hardship and Illness and, and cancer and fires and sin and, and disappointment and marital issues and, and witnessing people we love wander away from the faith. Or seeing children we've raised now see no beauty in Jesus. And, and a society and a culture that seems to be moving further from the truth of the gospel rather than closer to it. There will be those times where you will sit and wonder and long, hopefully, for Jesus even more, where he will reign supremely and not like it, it is now. And even within our own hearts, we do love him. We do so, however, imperfectly, that we long for something more tangible. You know, these very disciples, even after the initial excitement post-resurrection, 
and thousands coming to salvation, these disciples will live through that revival of sorts in the beginning of the book of Acts. But they shouldn't expect that kind of success, quote unquote, to be the norm. And frankly, it wasn't the norm. 3,000 did not come to Jesus every time Jesus preached. A lot of times he preached and he was thrown in jail instead. And these disciples, their futures will also be met with disappointment. More jail time, betrayal, heresy. A lot of them are going to be killed for what they believe. All of them are going to go through bouts of discouragement, uh, depression, if you will, disappointment and anxiety. And in those times of desperation, we can have this tendency to just want a sign of anything, uh, a, a new revival over there or a spiritual phenomenon over here. Oh, Kanye's a Christian now? Imagine the power of that. Tim Tebow, whatever, or this spiritual event here, I need something, anything. And there are some people who try to live from one experience to another and this spiritual high to the next one, emotionally speaking, that they need the next hit of something. And others throughout the centuries have latched on to this cult leader or that one or this new teaching or that or this one who claims to be Jesus and whatnot because they are longing for something more than what they are seeing. And people buy it, perhaps because they do want something more than the current state of events. I mean, we see it today. This elected official is really going to boost our cause. Or this celebrity pastor, or this blah, 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 Messiah-type figure. Because the difficult time of the in-between period can make people feel desperate for anything. Any sign, give me something, Jesus, because of a longing. And there is very clear teaching from Jesus here. Do not fall for any of it. For when I return, it will be as undeniable as lightning in the sky. So don't go sign chasing or spiritual event hunting or tossed to and fro by this or that because of a longing which may be good in and of itself but can quickly rot because of a lack of patience and perseverance or resilience in the midst of difficult times. I am coming back, and when I come back, it's going to be undeniable. But notice that that is not the main encouragement for them or us to press forward. Notice what Jesus does point his followers to when he anticipates their own suffering and their own longing for the kingdom and their own desire for the king himself. He points them, verse 25, really to the cross. He says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And that's something. There's something about, uh, there's something Jesus' disciples and his followers, believers, that we need to understand in our difficulties, and that is the cross of Christ. We have to understand Jesus' own suffering to endure our own suffering in the meantime before Jesus returns undeniably again. Like Jesus' own obscure beginnings and a kingdom initiated without ostentatious shows of political and worldly power, which will culminate in the pinnacle of really where his body is lifted naked and bloody upon a cross of shame reserved only for the worst of criminals. And it's not like there's even just one cross there. There's a bunch of crosses. You might not have even been able to pick Jesus out of the lineup, which looks like the greatest failure imaginable. But for us who believe, that's the sinless Son of God dying for sinners such as us, even more so to die as sin itself in our place and endure a shameful death so that he might defeat death. So his people, his church, we need to know that we also have a cross to carry in this world as well. And as heavy as it is, 
We must not look for our own intoxication in some kind of this or that or spectacular personality here and there who can give us a hit of Jesus-like substitute. But the greatest honor we perhaps have as his people is to carry our cross in much the same way as he and long for his return by focusing on the atonement itself which occurred on behalf of us out of his heart of love for us. That as we behold our Savior crucified, as we peer into Calvary and see him hanging, that that is where we are given the vitality we need to continue to live this life until his undeniable return. How does Jesus inaugurate his kingdom? By suffering and by rejection. And what then, when we suffer and are rejected and long for a kingdom that is not this current broken world we have right now, we look upon his cross to help us carry our own. We behold Jesus Christ hanging upon that tree as he beholds us, his bride, with eyes of love. And then we press on, not denying the difficulties of things on earth, but embracing them, for we know that all of this is not the final word. And this is not our permanent existence. And the pains we feel here, none of that is what is ultimate. The return of Jesus is going to be sudden and undeniable. But the time between Jesus' first and second coming is going to be difficult. And therefore, we must behold our Savior upon the cross so that we might be energized to carry our own until that final day. Verse 26, we continue. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and be given, being given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the house up with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, that the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Perhaps the greatest danger to us being ready for Jesus' return in his second coming is a preoccupation with the current world more so than the next one. And that last sentence there is a thesis for our Christian life here on earth. If we want to preserve this life, we're going to lose life. If we lose this life, we gain life. For perhaps it is the greatest danger to professing Christians is this preoccupation within, with this world in this short and momentary existence that what is here and now feels permanent and more important than what is to come. Jesus brings up two illustrations to prove his point. What happened before the flood in the days of Noah and what happened before the judgment in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these aren't just any examples. These are examples of two famously wicked periods of time. Listen to the commentary of Genesis 6-5 of what people were like in the days of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, humanity, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of every person's heart. That's the days of Noah. 
Sodom and Gomorrah, we know from Genesis 18, 19, guilty of countywide sexual immorality where they were not found at the end of 18. 50, not 45, not 30, not 20, not even 10 people who were guiltless. They were homogenous in their wickedness. And we can hear that and think, well, we're not in danger then because every intention of the thought of my heart is not on evil continually. And the kind of sexual immorality found within Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not even appealing to me. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't actually point to their gross iniquities at all, but instead he points to something else. He points to regular life. The days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Nothing on these two lists are sinful in and of themselves. The people aren't engaging here in anything intrinsically evil. But what then is a problem? The problem is that they were living like the end was never coming. And they lived entirely unaware of that coming future. And some people who call themselves believers today act much of the same way, that all of our attention is exclusively here, that we are so preoccupied with buying and selling, planting and building, investing in the here and in the now, getting that golf score lower, raising children to change the world and be pro athletes, blah, 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 that our lives are wrapped up almost entirely by the here and the now, and we are so early unprepared for what is undoubtedly going to come. And this point is highlighted in Lot's wife. Lot's family was mercifully rescued from the fiery judgment. And as that judgment fell upon the cities and the valley, Lot and his entire family were saved. But Lot's wife, even though her life had been rescued, she looked back and then she was destroyed. She wasn't destroyed because of a look. She was destroyed because of a love within her heart because her heart was back in Sodom. And for many of Christ's followers, the world is in our hearts. And our hearts are right here at home in the world. And therefore, we're not going to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ unless somehow he is more important to us than this world is. We will not be ready for Jesus unless he is more to us than the here and in the now. You save life, you lose it. You lose life here, you find it. Now, we know this conceptually, but I think we need to hear it and let it sink in because it's a truth that always seems to float away. If Jesus is who he says he is, and if his kingdom is going to come, everything else is temporary. Everything. Everything else is temporary. I think we need to dwell on that daily. Everything is temporary. Your suffering is temporary. It's just for a moment. The home you own, the bank says you own it, it's a rental. Your highs, your lows, your career, the health of your body, your cancer cells, your big promotion, your acceptance to the college you've always wanted to go to, your rejection from the college you always wanted to go to. Everything is temporary and we have to stop treating it and acting like it is permanent. And we hear this urgency in verse 30, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the house stop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one in the field not turn back. You want to save your life? Forget your stuff. There is to be this spiritually healthy detachment from things here. 
Our preoccupation cannot be with this passing and momentary existence. Our hearts cannot be wrapped up in the here and in the now to the degree that we act oblivious of what is to come. Again, we want to save this life. We lose life. We lose this life. We live. I don't know if any of you have seen these visuals in Maui, these testimonies where people are saying they had to flee from the fire with the clothes on their back and they jumped into that water. That's the only thing that saved them. We need to flee and flee and flee and jump into Jesus Christ. That's the only way you save your life. For the disciple, perhaps the biggest threat to us is not necessarily abject immorality like Sodom and Gomorrah and the days of Noah, but simply just making our home here prior to the return of the king, that this little kingdom is what is ultimate and not that which is to come. How often do we spend even five, ten minutes thinking about that kingdom to come? Instead, in my own life, it's often swallowed up entirely by anxious thoughts about the here and the now. And it tells me and it tells us where our hearts are at, brothers and sisters. At the end of the day, this is really a test of what we love. If we know Jesus more and more, we love him more and more. And that love loosens our grip on all other loves. If we don't know Jesus, we're not going to love him. And then we're going to grip onto almost everything else but him. And so it is when the time is long and the initial hype is gone, for the disciple, perhaps the biggest threat to us is not abject immorality, but again, just making our home here prior to the return of our king, a preoccupation with this current world, uh, more so than the next one, that this kingdom is what is ultimate and not that which is to come. Look with me in verse 34, and we'll close with these final verses. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And, they said to him, and he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, Jesus is impressing again the seriousness of his return and the impact it's going to have on the world and especially uh, the impact it will have in some of our closest relationships. Two people in the same bed are going to be separated into two different categories. Two people who are with each other all day, every day, one taken, the other left. The great separation of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, is not yet. We all exist side by side. And we can get comfortable, therefore, because we are all together all the time and think that everyone is okay. But a day is coming where even the ones closest to you may not ultimately be with us. For at that moment when Jesus returns, the only Thing that matters is if we truly have the king and if we really live for his kingdom. Everything else about life doesn't matter. You know, my, my kids, the boys, the three boys, are always arguing about which one of them is going to be taller. In our house, there's like chairs here and a little kid chair there and a step here, and they'll stand on it and they'll say, how tall is this, Daddy? I'm going to be this tall. And uh, one of their brothers would jump in, I'm going to be taller than you. No, you're not. And then they fight but they're preoccupied by which one of them is going to be the tallest one. And I don't feel like we actually really change that much as adults. I mean, we're always trying to step on this and that. I want to be this high, higher than you. But really, all of these categories that we try and do that with, only one thing matters now, and only one thing matters eternally. If we are Christ, if he is our king, and do we seek ye first the kingdom of God, Nothing else ultimately matters, not even your closest relationships. Even that will be divided by this one thing. 
And the only question for us is if we really believe it. Uh, Scott, the disciples are listening to this. They're, they're freaking out. Where, where, where are these people going to be taken? And Jesus responds, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I can't say with confidence that I know what that means. Sounds kind of cryptic. Other than where death is, signs of death accompany it. That's true. Vultures eat the dead. It's an image of judgment. And with spiritual death, it's the same. There's going to be signs that accompany that. And judgment won't necessarily occur. And that is how Jesus ends his teaching on the kingdom, which sounds really grim and negative, but which also likely tells us that we often need to be awakened from our earthly stupor with a loud alarm. You know, our alarm clocks, they don't sing lullabies to us. They have a bell on, bing, bing, bing. Some of them have two bells, ding, 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 ding. And this is Jesus double belt, ding, 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 ding. We gotta wake up. I'm coming back. What you're experiencing right now is not ultimate. What you're investing all your time in right now may not even last to the end of your life. Ding, 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 ding. I'm coming back. It will be undeniable. It's not going to be like the first coming. The church will be triumphant. It will be obvious. It will be ostentatious, if you will, in glory. Live for that. Live for Christ. Now, as you come to the Lord's table, we also understand that the one who's ringing this alarm and who sounds as grim and judgy is not doing so out of any other motive than love. Jesus, our king upon a throne, who we will one day see. Jesus, creator and ruler of heaven and on earth, and who proclaims his kingdom and judgment concerning it. It's the same Jesus who says, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat. And this is a cup that is poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. Drink. We're supposed to eat and drink of Christ. He gives all of himself to us sacrificially. That same love motivates the gospel. That same love preaches the kingdom just like this. It's the love of Christ in a matter of life and death that tragedies like Noah's day and tragedies like Sodom and Gomorrah's day and in the person of Lot's wife who looked saved. She seemed like she was a believer. She just wasn't ultimately found to be one. It's so that tragedies like these might be ingrained in our minds so that there will never be a rerun of the same event, that we will not get it wrong like these former religious people did. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we ask by your grace and by your mercy and in an act of love that you, in our hearts, by the Holy Spirit, would give us a great hunger for your kingdom more than any other kingdom, that we would bow the knee only to Jesus Christ and to no one else. I pray that you would loosen our grips from a preoccupation with this world, that we would behold Jesus upon the cross to give us life and vitality to carry our own crosses. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be merciful to us now and especially to those in Maui that these things might be all the more clearly held on to as true in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.